Yep, I'm recording in here. We have two other bathrooms. <laughs> that is high quality content right there. <laughs> Close out with that. <laughs> I think we should open with that. When you look at the nature of design and itself, it is all about action. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that we define design is the intention and unintentional impact behind an outcome. And when you hear that definition, you recognize that everything has been by design, whether you're talking curriculum design, policy design, buildings, you know, um, websites, also, honestly, how we show up in spaces every single day. I'm Andrew Seligson. I'm Marisol Morales. And I'm Emily Shields. And this is the Compact Nation podcast. Hey, everybody. Hanging in there? Yeah, we, uh, I am on this end. And actually, I I wanted to just start us off today um, remembering Dick Cohn, who passed away last week. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think... Some, some listeners will have known Dick personally. Others may have been familiar with his work. Dick was, for decades, the director of the Joint Education Project at University of Southern California, USC. Uh, and Dick was a real pioneer leader in the field of higher education, civic, and community engagement. He came into that work after uh, an early part of his career in Peace Corps um, he was academically an educational psychologist, but I think uh, many of us knew him as uh, a fierce advocate for this work in higher education, a mentor to many people. I got to know him because before we'd ever met in person, he heard that we were pursuing the credentialing work and wanted to uh, share some views about it. And Dick and I had a very extended and interesting for me and valuable uh, email exchange about what he saw as the crucial values to be built into any kind of program because he was very worried about uh, a sort of cookie cutter program that would try to push one standardized vision of what engagement work was was like. And what was interesting to me was, uh, so I saw his kind of analytic side, his passion, and I didn't until I met him in person understand that all of that was kind of uh, sitting on a foundation of of deep personal warmth and just evident concern for everybody he came into contact with, and that was um, that was that was great for me to experience. So I really appreciated his wisdom and uh, and really his pushing me and us at Campus Compact to to live out our values uh, in in the way we we make programs happen. Yeah, um, I might start crying, but uh, Dick was a personal mentor to me, especially like when I was in um, California. And so um, I got to know him first during a, a retreat that I went to. It was probably the Dick Cohn retreat uh, at uh, the California Campus Compact put together when I was at University of, of Laverne. And, you know, um, just... This, you know, old white dude and I um, kind of connecting and just loving his 
uh, passion for, for the work, his critique and his like openness to, to mentor. So, um, you know, he and I would talk regularly or I'd go over and have lunch with he and his wife um, and just, you know, spending time kind of talking about things, getting advice, uh, debating things and um had the time, had the opportunity to spend some time with him. Um, and actually, you, Andrew, I think this is the first time that I met you when we went up to um, the, um, what was it called? The, the Gathering. It was called The, the gathering. gathering. It had an yeah, ominous name. That's but it right. Was a good gathering. <laughs> the uh, Gathering. And um, just build upon that relationship there and um, feeling like he was one of those folks who took mentorship. Um, you know, um, seriously and uh, was about cultivating uh, folks and was also open to, to feedback. Um, my fondest memory of him there at the gathering was he had made some like comment about like single moms. That wasn't the most appropriate. So I, you know, had a conversation with him on the side about it and um, just like, hey, you know, you might want to rethink this. And he was really open to that feedback. And he actually then at the gathering called himself out on it and said, hey, you know, I made this comment. I want to apologize publicly. And I and so for me, that really spoke volumes to his character um, and just to the love and care that he had for all of us in this work. And um so I'm going to miss him um, deeply. Um, and um, but I'm so glad for the time that I had um, with him. And I know a lot of others are feeling his loss, but know that, um, you know, he was someone who who loved deeply. And um, this is really a celebration of, of his life. Um, the the myriad of, of mentees that he has across the, the country and how this work goes on. And I would say it's in his spirit, I think, that what we would all do is remember, acknowledge, and also like keep on doing the work and talking about the ideas we need to and and push each other to to again to live up to the things we share and, and we want to share. So uh so that's what we'll keep doing. We'll we'll move forward with this podcast, have the conversations, uh, and know that, that that kind of honors Dick's memory in the doing. Absolutely. Thank you. And I know we also just want to, you know, say to anyone out there listening, we know things are tough right now. And we know I've talked to so many community engagement professionals and, and faculty members and presidents and everyone is working so hard to try to figure out how to continue to provide education and meet basic needs and uh, mental health and well-being. And there's just a lot of a lot of care and concern and we share it Um it's a very difficult time and just hope everybody is doing their best to take care of themselves and their loved ones and stay safe and stay home. Yeah. Yeah. And just that, you know, not everybody ex is experiencing this um, the same way, given people's uh, home lives and circumstances. And so just the compassion um, that we have to have with with one another um, during this time and checking in. Um, and thinking about the ways that we can be there for one another. So what do we have in store today, Emily? Yeah. So we get to go to an interview that I did now what feels like 
1 million years ago, but I think it was maybe six weeks <laughs> um, with a, an amazing organization that I've had the opportunity to get to know in the last couple of years. Um, it's called Creative Reaction Lab, and they are um, based in St. Louis and just really doing great work helping people think about equity-centered community design. And you'll learn more in the interview about what they mean by that. But just to tell you who we're talking to, um, I was able to interview Antoinette Carroll, who's the president, founder, and CEO of Creative Reaction Lab. She um, began her work in this area following um, the events in Ferguson of a few years ago, where she was from, and just really wanting to see communities designed and differently and processes done differently. And she's since been been able to build this organization and do some really um, amazing work deploying youth to challenge racial and health inequities impacting Black and Latinx populations in particular. Um, We also talked to Hilary Sedovic, who is the learning and education manager, um, a social work professional who uh, designs and facilitates workshops as a part of their work. Um, One quick plug I'll give is that they talk some about their REFRESH program which uh, stands for Redesigning Education for Racial Equity and Social Healing, where they're um, creating an intergenerational cohort of youth and educators to really look at redesigning education. And that program is moving forward for the next year. And actually, the deadline is April 17th. So really coming up, if you want to check that out, we'll put a link in our show notes for that. So let's go to the interview. So Antoinette and Hillary, thank you for joining us on the Compact Nation podcast. My first question as I think about the work you do is, why design? What led you to that approach to problem solving? It's, it's interesting hearing that because um, we sometimes get the question, why design? And Many times we talk about like this idea of how do we move from awareness and building our knowledge and consciousness building to, to the space of action. And when you look at the nature of design in itself, it is all about action. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that we define design is the intention and unintentional impact behind an outcome. Okay. And when you hear that definition, you recognize that Everything has been by design, whether you're talking curriculum design, policy design, buildings, you know, um, websites. Also, honestly, how we show up in spaces every single day. Like I'm a mom. And so I think about how I'm designing how my children think. Um, And so there's a lot of power in the idea of design. And I personally believe that Design was the invisible disruptor before disruption became the biggest buzzword in the business space. Um, And so it really is shifting this mindset and having people understand that design is everywhere. And thus, we also are designers and we also have um, opportunity and responsibility to design better outcomes for all of us. 
That's great. So I've, you know, reading up on some of your work and, and some watching some of your videos, um, I'm intrigued with how you got started. I think I'm kind of always intrigued with like what sparks, you know, doing something differently or getting involved for people. And I know for you, that was related to the events in Ferguson, um, in 2014, from what I've read, take me back to that moment. And, um, what, what really sparked your interest in, in doing something and in particular this something? When I think back to what was happening in Ferguson, I'm going to be honest. Like I, I was actually very timid. I uh, was uh, questioning what role I was playing in my community. This year was the same year that I went to the School of Visual Arts uh, Social Impact Design Intensive. Um, It was the year that I uh, changed my thousands of New Year's resolutions to one, which was this idea of just follow through. Um, And it was a time in which I really started to have this tension of, how am I being recognized in the space professionally versus how I'm being recognized in the space based on my personal identity and the power or honestly the disparity of power in both of those roles? Because uh, my family and I actually were living in Ferguson up to six months prior to the uprising in Ferguson. And coincidentally, I also was working at a diversity and inclusion nonprofit at the time, but no one ever asked me about my lived experience in Ferguson. They only cared about my professional pedigree. And I thought that was problematic. Um, I saw a lot of efforts in our community, either being the extremes where it was only community. And most of the time it was through the lens of having to protest and honestly trying to break down the powers uh, that be. And then you had the one that was only professional and, you know, that you had government officials talking to government officials. You had honestly artists talking to artists. And I wanted to create a space where you can merge those two worlds and not just merge to have a discussion, but merge and think about how do we collectively come up with ideas to address St. Louis's racial divide Mm -hmm. um, that were impacting all of us because it wasn't, it wasn't just the unfortunate death of Michael Brown Jr. Right. That was a catalyst in that moment. But St. Louis is one of the most segregated cities in the country. Right. There was a lot of tension and challenge around race in our community, just like many other cities in yeah. this country. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think of one where that's not the case. I feel like every city is like, we're the most segregated. Really? No, right. we are. Like, they, exactly. we all are. <laughs> exactly. Like, because, and believe me, that is not a competition we should yeah. be having. No. <laughs> um, but that is the history of this country, right? Um, and so at that time, I was more um, very hyper-local. And looking at what can we do in our community, especially as a St. Louis native. Uh, And since then, it's really been, to your point, acknowledging that this is a United States challenge. I would even argue global, but (laughs) the global community has yet to to have a conversation around equity versus equality and how race is even a construct in their uh, countries. But it it really was this idea of how do you shift power? um, And how do you allow community to be the decision makers and say, this is what I need, but also not, this is what I need, now give it to me, but this is what I need and I'll create it myself. Yeah. So, you know, design is certainly um, a thing these days, right? As they say, and a lot of folks talking about human centered design and that kind of thing. So tell me what 
equity centered design is and how you see that as different? Sure. So the framework that our organization has pioneered equity centered community design. Um, oftentimes we hear that people who are coming from the human centered design space found that something was missing. They were looking for something more and that something more was equity and inclusion. And so some of the big things that they notice are different about equity center community design. One is that we don't rely on empathy alone. We talk about the importance of building humility as the foundation to then access empathy. As well, uh, we recognize that acknowledging history and the need for healing and also acknowledging and dismantling power constructs need to be at the center of every part of the design process um, in order to move toward more equitable outcomes because everything that has been designed uh, in the history of our country and of the world um, have not been centering those things. Well, no, let me back up. There are certainly cultures who have centered those things. Right. <laughs> yep. yep, let's call it. <laughs> White supremacy has made it such that things that have been designed do not center history and healing and right. do not acknowledge and dismantle power constructs, therefore resulting in inequitable outcomes. And so equity-centered community design is centering those things and also um, making sure that we're integrating the need to invite diverse co-creators and making sure that we're not just inviting them, but they are right. centered People are centered as living experts um, and that we are valuing their knowledge and expertise alongside of, if not more than those with academic expertise. So help um, paint the picture for us of, of what that looks like in your ideal scenario. Like what's a success story you would point to and, you know, um, obviously maybe not perfection, you know, but what's, what's a story that you point to where you're, or the, you know, that, gives people a clear sense of the work your organization does and what it can lead to. So a few things to come to mind. I, I focus a lot on, you know, outcomes because we've had some people that went through our engagements and it shifted their thinking and how they're mm -hmm. designing their curriculum in their classroom. You know, we've mm -hmm. had some people that have uh, thought about how they, they were designing their business and shifting that to have more of an inclusive and equitable culture. Um, and then we also like at the center of our mission is actually working with Black and Latinx youth. And mm -hmm. so a lot of our deep death work is with young people in the community because our mindset is that we can't just focus on the mayors. We can't just focus on the CEO or these individuals that are, you know, in the quote unquote, you know, power and privileged positions. Uh, we need to focus on the young people that also have power, uh, that also can shift uh, our culture because many times they actually have, we just tend to erase them. Um, and I would argue that the adults tend to be in their way. <laughs> um, and so, you know, in thinking about, you know, that idea, like our first uh, cohort of our designs, but our community summer academy, uh, they were with us for six weeks and uh, we didn't have a topic at the beginning of the six weeks. Okay. It was very high level of racial and health inequity. That was it. Like, and, and you have to go and conduct community research. You have to uh, learn about your teammate and, um, from that experience, after conducting research, they learned that one of the challenges in the St. Louis region was really looking at uh, the mental and physical well-being of youth of color and also understanding the intersection of economics with that. Uh, and so the uh, four teams that ultimately came from that cohort all developed their own um, interventions to address it. One okay. was 
was a mini documentary uh, showing uh, what youth of color are dealing with that also can lead to more stress and trauma and like how to unpack that. Uh, one of the groups uh, reimagined school assemblies through a health equity lens, which I would argue <laughs> needs to happen more. Oh, yeah. Um, there was another cohort uh, that created a, a pilot of a student-ran mental health podcast. Uh, and then the last uh, one was directly looking at uh, this idea of backpack fairs and how everyone's obsessed with them at the beginning of the school year. Let's give a backpack to a young student and then, you know, our job is done. Uh, but they thought about how do you create a backpack fair that's in the middle of the year that takes into account what students economically are dealing with and also takes into account what they're dealing with along the lens of mental and physical health and actually providing them what they need, uh, not mm-hmm. just once a year, but multiple times in a year for them to be successful. Uh, and these were high school students. And wow. so... That, you know, is an example of like a deepened project. Uh, we've done other ones. We have one right now that's actually looking at limited healthy food access um, in a, a historically underinvested Black community in St. Louis. Um, but it's it comes in many different shapes and forms. Um, but it's not it's not always tangible. Sometimes it's a mindset shift. Yep. And there's power in that as well. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. Um, so... Tell me about your work with higher education specifically. That's most of our audience. So um, maybe just describe a little bit the work you have done in higher ed. And then I think I have some other questions too around that. But um, how do you seek, well, why do you work with colleges and universities? And then what are you seeking to do with them? Hmm. You want me to answer you? <laughs> there's, there's so many answers to be given. I can I can provide some of the context based on um, from the learning and education department point of view. So the vast majority, for one, the vast majority of folks who have downloaded our Equity Center Community Design Field Guide are educators or come from an education space. Okay, sixty or seventy percent. Every workshop that we do, um, we co-create the agenda. And so it's not just that we have this menu and we're like, here, we'll come in and do the thing. Um, It's this conversation of what do you all need? Who is the audience? And how do we meet you where you are so that we can come out the other side with an action plan, with being on the same page, um, working toward this mindset together. And so in our, some of our higher ed engagements, it's been stuff that is combining folks in the community and students and faculty and staff. Um, other times, and they might be looking at school policy. They might okay. be looking at uh, most recently community engagement and what is the role of higher ed in community engagement and how do we explore those power dynamics so that we are pursuing more equitable outcomes. Um, we've also done work with students. So equipping students as we like with our mission being aligned with youth, um, equipping students with this framework and starting to think through what is their role in redesigning for justice. Um, and what does that look like in every piece of the work they're doing? Because it's not just students who are coming from a design background. You know, we are with students who are, you know, pursuing health majors, um, you know, social work, education, yes, um, but also like engineering and Mm -hmm. all of these different spaces. And we're really careful to make sure that it's not just people who are pursuing traditional design that recognize that this is something um, that is for them. And I also want to add, it's a little uh, funny at times when we are randomly tweeted 
<laughs> or have a photo <laughs> on Instagram uh, in which we have found that in many higher education <laughs> professionals, when they download the field guide, they're automatically changing their curriculum around it. Um, oh, wow. And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, you know, we're, we look at it and we're like, that's great. And huh? <laughs> like, what does that look like? What does that look like? Um, yeah. And so due to that, we actually have are now um, launching a formal program uh, working with educators that are at high school, undergrad and kind of early grad level, um, which is called Refresh that stands for Redesigning Education for Racial Equity and Social Healing. Okay. Uh, that is an intergenerational program in which we are working with educators in all of those levels, also community educators as well, yeah, right. just to clarify, um, to integrate our framework into their actual curriculum and having their students develop projects around racial and health equity. Uh, and so, it, honestly, our program is a direct uh, response to what the higher education and what the K through 12 education um, systems are already saying we, they want because they we have thousands of people that have downloaded our field guide um, across the world actually and um, we would want to support them in that journey even more so than just having them kind of have that material and so we felt the responsibility to to build that program out. Why do you think educators in particular are seeking this out? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you've asked and just wondering kind of what you're hearing, what kind of impulses um, are pointing them in your direction? I think something that I'm thinking about, especially given our rec more recent youth program, I'm thinking about uh, YLCC, uh, Young Leaders for Civic Change in St. Louis. Um, the students are probably pushing back. Mm -hmm. on their on their educators and saying this curriculum this ain't it <laughs> like this does yeah. not represent me this is not telling the whole story this is not history as i know it and is not fact um we need more we need like we hold power we need you to recognize that we hold power and i think the students are pushing it um, and I, I agree, you know, I can give some credit to educators too, who are also, I've, you know, I've worked with educators who are like, look, like this is the curriculum I was handed and we're going to be making some adjustments yeah. um, because this is not comprehensive of the experience of my students and even beyond the experience of their students to give a more comprehensive picture of learning of education of our country um, and what is possible. I would also add, um, I have seen personally an uptick in service learning uh, and uh, project-based learning, uh, especially when you think about everyone working to cultivate and build stronger 21st century skills uh, and social-emotional learning practices. Uh, but what I appreciate about uh, the educators that have come to us, and even the ones that haven't but are doing the work, is that they're understanding that this has to have an equity-centered and anti-bias and anti-racism uh, yeah. lens in this work. Uh, I will personally say beyond why they may be showing up um, in kind of our community, I would push out and say why more educators should show up because <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. 
educators um, need to understand that they are a narrative and livelihood shaper. They impact the perceptions we have about ourselves and others. They impact our life expectancy, our quality of life. The, the education system is extremely powerful. Like when you look at a majority of people in life, I won't say everyone because not everyone has had the opportunity to receive maybe formal education, mm-hmm. but a majority of people that receive formal education, they are learning their perspectives from the people in the front of the room. Yeah. And we need to really think about what is our power and responsibility as people in front of the room, as the designers of this curriculum, as the designers of this experience, as the designers of narratives. And how can we shift that? Because even to the simple basic fact of <laughs> Hillary and them hear me say this all the time, I'm like, I'm a U.S. American. I am not just an American because there are many Americas, yeah. you, know? And, you know, but yet like when we think of our language and when we say when this country was founded, no, this country was not founded. <laughs> okay, like, and, and, and it's extremely important for us to acknowledge that even a simple two-hour session can really change how someone believes and also how someone acts around others. Uh, and so we, we believe more educators should show up, should challenge their privileges, their biases, how they're showing up, and also, honestly, ask for help and look for co-creators on how to build out um, more equitable, honestly, classrooms, community organizations, whatever it may be, because we can't do this work alone. Yeah. When you, so, you know, a lot of our audiences is going to be folks thinking about community engaged and civically engaged learning, uh, whether that happens in the classroom or through other activities on campus. So in your experience, where, where are we missing the mark when we think about those kinds of educational experiences? What, what are the biggest things that you think need to change? And I don't mean, obviously that would mean you've seen some people who are changing it. So I'm not asking you to like, uh, you know, say that no one is doing this well, mm-hmm. but you know, um, you know, we, there, there have been a lot of conversations about critical service learning and community engagement. I know from my perspective there, we have a long ways to go and I'd be interested in mm-hmm. what you think are the most important things for people who do want to change how we go about those educational practices to focus on. I think to start, one of the underlying things that I'd like to see amplified more is the building of strong reciprocal relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think about uh, faculty members, perhaps who are seeking community partners, is it more than reaching out and saying, my students need a place to learn? Right. How has this relationship been cultivated for a longer period of time such that there's a distribution of power um, and that I, I want to say that there was somebody who who posed a really important question, I believe, in the workshop that we did uh, most recently at Cornell um, when somebody had posed, you know, how do we how do we make sure that everybody wins? And a student said, I don't know that I agree that that's a question we need to answer. Or does everybody need to win? What does winning look like? Mm. Um, And when we think, I I really appreciated that question because to me, when I think about equitable outcomes and I think about history, from my perspective, higher ed has had many wins. (laughs) (laughs) Community 
Not nearly as many. And we can list some wins if we want or not. Um, but the power dynamic is significantly shifted when we look at traditional power. And so what does it look like to visit community winning as a result of community engagement? Um, And not just that we're providing these students who are getting a learning experience and, you know, then the community gets a needs assessment from people who are learning. And I say that too, as someone who did service learning myself, like my background is in social work. I did um, internships and practica and I found value in them. And I had a mentor at those spa- in those spaces who forged community relationships, who helped me understand the importance of culturally responsive work mm-hmm. and not just being the one coming in and taking everything that I need to learn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And part of that is honestly letting go of this idea of an agenda. Mm-hmm. Part of it is also really thinking about how do we co-create opposed to me owning. And I would also mm-hmm. argue and ask the question, how do we also pay them for their time? Yeah. Because, hey, you're getting paid. <laughs> like, it's, it's the reality, right? Like, as a community organization, there have been institutions that have reached out, like, we want our students to do X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, we just don't have the time. We don't have the capacity. Like, it, it actually takes away yes. from the work that we are doing in the community to meet your purpose but most of the time it's presented as, no, but we're doing this for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does, come, it does come off as a little like we're trying to save you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let, let us formally educated individuals come save you because apparently you can't do it alone. But how do you actually uh, share power in those situations and acknowledge that just like you are spending your time working on this effort, that the community is also spending their time and right. therefore they should be compensated just like you're compensated i'm pretty sure students will argue that they would need to be compensated too <laughs> i mean i will say especially when it comes to practica if they're spending yeah anyway <laughs> you don't have to go there uh, so i guess th- this might be um too difficult of a question but if you if we could start over and re-envision what a college or university looks like and it and it were more equity centered and, and community designed. What comes to mind when you think about that? How would it look different than it does right now um, at that institutional level? So a colleague of mine, um, he, he is an instructor at Washington University in St. Louis. He always says that, he can't tell you what equity will look like, but he can tell you how he would feel. Oh, and okay. so I like that. I, right. And, you know, and we have a definition of equity. Like when we talk about equity, we talk about uh, when, you know, outcomes are not predictable based on someone's identity. So if right. you talk about racial equity, it's when outcomes are not predictable based on someone's race, right? Um, but when I think about a higher educational system in which equity is centered, honestly, I would hope that actually more liberation would be centered um, in that institution, that um, I have the freedom to show up, be my authentic self without having to code switch, without having to worry about being a token. And, you know, we can have critical discussion and dialogue without judgment, and we are collectively actually weren't learning together. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, for me, I, while I haven't seen a lot of people creating higher ed institutions, I have seen a lot of individuals that's starting to create more K through 12 institutions that's okay. centering liberation, that's centering social justice, that's centering uh, racial consciousness and gender consciousness and being more intentional around accessibility and et cetera. Um, but I will be honest, a lot of us are reacting. there's a reason why we're called creative reaction lab because the idea of being proactive is honestly flawed because even in being proactive we are still ultimately reacting to something because of history um and so when i think about these institutions that's being created uh whether we're talking k-12 or we're talking community institutions we are all reacting to honestly um these oppressive systems that's been around for centuries. Uh, and some of the reactions is through the lens of, I want more justice and I want people to be centered. Some of the reactions is honestly through the lens of fragility and fear. And so mm-hmm. I want to pretend that it doesn't exist. Right. Um, and we have it all along that spectrum. Um, but when I think about any space or any institution where equity is centered, I won't have to sit and worry if I have a higher likelihood of dying because I am a black woman. I have a higher likelihood of being in poverty because I am a black woman. I have a higher likelihood that I had to use pill or I have to have a scholarship to even be in the room. And I also don't have a higher likelihood that when I'm in a classroom with my colleagues, I don't have mainly my white colleagues that say, oh, well, I read this in middle school when I've never even heard of this author. (laughs) <laughs> you know, these are things that show up in our spaces um, every day that impact how we feel as if we belong, you know, um, and that is a problem. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, a lot of important points that we need to be thinking about in creating different colleges and universities of the future. So if our listeners are like me and now intrigued about the work that you do, how can they engage with you? Um, what, what should they go look for? Well, what? Our new website. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're in the middle of right now. Okay. Go uh, on the website yet. No. <laughs> you said, when is this launching? Next week? Next week. Are you ready? They can look at your website next week? Okay. <laughs> Um, so I think one place that a lot of people start is by downloading the field guide, the equity mm-hmm. design field guide from our website. Um, we also have, you know, Antoinette has been on the TED stage in several spaces. So if you want to hear more, uh, from the head of Antoinette, <laughs> then you can find that on YouTube. Um, but also we've written several articles that dig deeper into um, the kinds of things that we're thinking through a creative reaction lab. So one talking about the role of vulnerability in moving toward equity um, okay. in an in innovation process. Uh, when I think about in-person opportunities, you know, I think I mentioned earlier, we, we do workshops across the country, right. uh, technically continent. Um, and Pretty much, I was going to say, we, we pretty much never say no. There's, no. there's been a 
That's not majority of the time we don't say no. Yeah. It's because we're always interested in figuring out uh, this, this work needs to be in so many spaces. And so if somebody expresses interest, we're going to find a way to meet them where they are and figure out like, how do we make this happen? How can we best support you? Um, And then similarly, if there are people who their organization might not be bought in far enough to be able to bring us in, uh, we also have the Equity by Design Immersive Series, which is a public-facing engagement um, where anybody is welcome to come actually from across the world. We've had people from outside of the U.S. join us before, um, and it's three days of programming, 22 hours over three days, Um, and it's really an opportunity to dig real deep into equity-centered community design and practice application to a relevant issue for the community where we're hosting it. Um, and I like really emphasize practice that we're not developing interventions to be deployed in a community because that's completely antithetical to equity-centered community design, but it's giving people an opportunity to be around other people who are interested in this work, who are doing this work, um, and figure out like, how do we create this community together of redesigners for justice? And so we have, we'll be in Baltimore, April 24th through the 26th. Okay. And then in Chicago, the first week of Ju- weekend of June. So I think that's the fifth through the seventh. Okay. Um, and also because this is a podcast around people in education, our application f- applications for refresh will be opening uh, within the next week. Okay, great. um, And in fact, they might already be open by the time this is launched. This episode is launched. Okay. And so we encourage people to apply to be part of that as well so we can have that deeper dive with them. Great. Well, one more thing to answer to that. Um, Yes, go. The only reason I'm adding is because especially um, with us having a conversation with you, I think it would be important for us to speak on the fact that we're actually doing a Midwest Summit. That's true. um, In the summer. uh, Okay. That will the, um, with educators from uh, across the Midwest uh, and them looking at how do we integrate uh, equity and anti-bias, anti-racism practice into uh, social emotional learning learning efforts. Uh, and so that the applications for that will be opening uh, within the next month or so, but that, okay. is that is also happening as well. All right. Lots to look forward to. And we'll include links to that stuff in our show notes. All right, Hillary, Antoinette, really, really appreciate you giving us your time while you clearly have so much exciting stuff going on. Um, so thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you. It is more important than ever that we figure out what sparks joy for us. <laughs> so what is sparking joy for the two of you? Uh, I can start. Um, so, uh, so some folks may know my mom's in the hospital uh, right now. Uh, she had uh, some complications with diabetes and had to get her foot amputated. But um Yesterday, my sister and my dad and I were uh, working in the house trying to get it ready for when she comes back. And we were going through a bunch of old photos and um, just kind of going through all of our memories uh, together. My dad, my sister and I uh, sparked a lot of joy. So I found some really great pictures of like my mom when she was young, pictures that I had never seen before and like of my grandparents and like... um, 
you know, just of uh, a family members. I found a stack of like old boyfriend photos uh, from from high school and college. That was fun. And um, we used to belong to this uh, Puerto Rican camping club called the Caribbean Cruisers. And so I found a bunch of like photos from the late 70s um, and early 80s when we were in the camping club. And so I pulled those out. I want to do a research project um, on that and see if I can um, do something for the the, muse- the Puerto Rican Museum here. So that's sparking a lot of joy, just kind of the, the ride down memory, memory lane um, during these times and how important, you know, family and capturing those those memories are. That's good. That's very good. Really stuff. Cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing that's sparking joy for me is public space and the people who are in it. Um, so we are very fortunate to live a couple blocks from a very large park, uh, in Boston called Franklin park. And we have been, uh, you know, preserving our sanity by venturing out for walks in the park and, um, lots of other people are doing the same thing, but it's a, it's a big park and we can all stay appropriate distances from each other. And people are doing that being very respectful of, of each other. Uh, our mayor asked us all to be wearing masks in public and virtually everybody is doing that. Um, and one of the things I've been enjoying is the new social norms that we're quickly developing because you can't smile at other people when you're wearing a mask. And so people with some head nodding and some waving that would maybe seem like a little much in a normal setting, but it's clear that people are just trying to signal like, I see you, I recognize, you know, our shared humanity. And again, there's some, uh, as we kind of dance around each other on paths, people kind of acknowledging in a way that's like, you have the sense of everybody looking out for each other's health and well-being in a way that is really, uh, it's just affirming. And it's nice when you're spending so much time not experiencing other people in, in physical space. Boston was among the cities that shut down some streets this weekend to create more space for people to be outside without crowding, not a lot of vehicle traffic. And, you know, I, I at least have the hope that we will learn some things from this and maybe choose to uh, protect more of our cities for foot traffic, people on bicycles, et cetera, even when we come out of this um, because of the evident benefits. Um, so uh, that's been, that's been terrific. And um, even with, with less contact with my fellow citizens, it's been nice to uh, to have that limited uh, opportunity just to have eye contact in a sense that we're all in this together. Awesome. How about you, Emily? What's sparking joy for you? I'm trying to think. I mean, not because there aren't things. There are honestly a, a lot of things. I think what's coming to mind for me right now is just sort of the novelty of every day. It would seem like... Having to stay home would mean things every day is boring and the same. And yet I'm finding quite the opposite. Um, we haven't really made any schedule work, which I think I'm trying to just go with. Uh, and, you know, that just means every day, like today, I'm recording this in the bathroom. And that's a thing that's happening. Um, and we're very appreciative of that because it is, <laughs> it is, yeah, it's very joyful for us too on this end. <laughs> Just for, but my, you know, my kids are trying different things to keep themselves entertained, uh, which means I've been introduced to TikTok because they're. Oh, have you done a video? I haven't. My kids have, which they think people are seeing, but actually no one's seeing. (laughs) (laughs) But they're funny. And I mean, my kids have figured out how to use TikTok like 
so quickly. Like they're five and seven and they know how to do like voice effects and things that I was like, what? How did you do that? So I don't know. It's fun. We're trying to have fun together. I'm appreciative of remote learning that has now started with CPS and my son actually has scheduled things to do for school. So, yeah, we are not there yet. So we're kind of on our own trying to get them to do something educational every day. I've learned that the normal teenage uh, body clock is to wake up at like 2 or 3 p.m. and stay up till. So like if we let them and the past few weeks has allowed them to do that. Like he'd be strolling up here at like 2 or 3 p.m. to eat breakfast. So, yeah. (laughs) Let it ride, I guess. Right. Yeah, I feel like we we have learned through all this how many of the sort of structures of modern society are at war with our basic nature. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly they've all been suspended (laughs) and we're kind of left to figure it out on our own. I know. We do need a list of like the stuff that should never go back. And obviously there are big things in that category, right? Structural like, racism, yes, exactly. inequality, that's, you know, that's sexism. That's my list. But there are also little things like drive through booze, for example. <laughs> uh, it, yes, it, we, have, uh, we have been, we've proven to be a resourceful group. <laughs> and yes, hopefully we learned some lessons. Absolutely. Absolutely. But right. um, appreciative of the of, of the time and, and honestly, technology. I can't imagine, you know, yeah. thinking about what what work would look like or school if we didn't have some of these technology platforms that we do. So absolutely. Yeah, it has its downsides, but I still feel very connected to lots of people and I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys. Hang in there. I feel like I'm just saying that to everyone. <laughs> Hang it's in there. How are we... you really? <laughs> Don't ask. <laughs> Survive. Um, yeah. So thank you to everyone who is staying home if you can. But thank you for everyone who can't stay home too. Um, everybody who's keeping things going for us, uh, whether it's in healthcare or grocery stores or farm workers, care facilities, farm workers. You know, we 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 know now who's essential, and it's not me. <laughs> so, just really grateful for everyone who's um, keeping us all alive and healthy and with access to what we need. Amen. All right. From us at the Compact Nation podcast, um, thanks for listening. Hope you're taking care of yourselves out there. If you've got a little free time and, you know, we know you might, you can always subscribe, rate us, review us on whatever platform you use. Send us an email. Tell us what you'd like to hear us talk about. You can reach us at podcast at compact.org on social media, hashtag Compact Nation pod. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Compact Nation podcast comes to you from Campus Compact's national headquarters in the Leather District of Boston, Massachusetts. Our hosts are Marisol Morales, Emily Shields, and me, Andrew Seligson. Our producer is Molly Altiorem Leeper. 
Music is by Andrew Savage. You can find more of his music at andrewsavage.net. As always, you can find us online at compact.org slash podcast or on social media at hashtag compactnationpod. Thanks for listening. I am the podcat.